Ever since the very first murder, by the way, Genesis chapter 4 mentions that, when Cain killed his brother Abel, we, we find an example even there how people use violence to settle various disputes. It's been a normal thing throughout the centuries and through old cultures. They've had this idea that there have there, there needs to be limits on violence. And if we're to prevent wars from descending into just outright barbarity, uh, they, a lot of people believe there needs to be limits, even within war. In most rules of war, it was interesting, I was doing some study on this, I found they were written after World War II. In fact, back in 1949, you may have heard of the Geneva Convention. They came up with some really good stuff, if you, if you are really ever bored one day. And you want to read 429 articles, which I didn't read them all, but I did count them. There's 429 articles, plus they had some other stuff added onto it. But basically, they came up with these post-World War II at the Geneva Convention, these rules of war. Let me just give you some very important ones that they came up with, basic ideas from the Geneva Convention. One is that civilians must be protected. Praise God for that. Uh, they also mentioned that the prisoners of war, the POWs, needed to be cared for, and that included not torturing them. If you know your World War II history, I'm glad they learned from that. They also learned that the medical workers needed to do their job. Uh, they needed to be allowed to do their job. And that even included looking after the enemy's wounded soldiers. I, I, I was doing some study on this, and even I found out during World War II, sometimes some of our, our enemies in the Axis powers would act purposely shoot at the medics and try to wound them. Disgusting stuff, but that's what they did. And so they also said that the, the sick and wounded have a right to be cared for. Another one they said is the military is not supposed to use indiscriminate weapons, things like landmines and chemical weapons and, God forbid, nuclear weapons. And it's interesting, they've been discussing recently, adding on to the Geneva Convention rules of war, the, who would have ever thought of this, you know, back in World War II time? But now they're trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do with all these drones flying around in the air that are driven by somebody in uh, who knows where, United States somewhere, and then they're dropping bombs on someone in Asia? How do you do that? You know, how do you regulate that? Is there some rules we need on that? And then what about robots? Eventually you're going to have... You're going to have armies of robots out there fighting each other, and, and, and people are going to be just not a part of it. So we, we need some rules on that, and so they've been discussing that as well. All very interesting stuff, If you're again, if you're bored one day. So they came up, it's, it's amazing to me that, that people would actually come up with rules of war, but in a way, God's done the same thing for his people. Not only has he given us far more than just rules of war here, he's even told us who our enemy is, how to defeat our enemy, and then what's going to happen to you when the war is over. 
I think that's so cool that we have an amazing God like that that can tell us all of that stuff. Boy, if I was a soldier in World War II, wouldn't you love to know all that stuff? Yeah. <laughs> so let's see what Peter says. 1 Peter 5, verse, well, starting in verse 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, send you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, God wants us to do something with this text. These are His words to you and me. So here's the proposition. You can kind of see these words in verse 12. So I've kind of mainly got it from verse 12 there. That God wants you to stand firm in the grace of God. God wants you to stand firm in His grace. And in order to do that, he tells us some rules of war, and then he's going to show us who our enemy is, how to defeat him, and then what are we going to do when the war's ended? We're a mess. We need some help. Well, <laughs> there's some good news for us to come there. But first, let's look at the rules of war. In other words, how should a soldier of Christ in the Lord's army conduct the spiritual warfare? And the first thing he he says to those who are not elders in verse 5, as he says, you are to submit to your spiritual authority. It's interesting, that's coming right after that text. The first four verses talk about the, the responsibilities and privileges of an elder. And then he carries on and, and says, okay, now here's the responsibility for those who are not elders. All right, some of your Bibles might have the word young men there. It's not just referring to the male gender. This is everybody who is who is younger in the faith. And you are to submit to your spiritual authority because the word elder there just refers to the spiritual leaders of the church. The word subject or, or submit in some of your Bibles is a military term. The idea is you line up in your rank underneath your, your commanding officers. So, 
in case you're not clear on this, here is the chain of command that God has given for you and for me. So first of all, the chain of command goes like this. You'll see it on the screen here. Of course, first of all, you have the head of the church, your commanding officer, your the commander-in-chief is Jesus Christ himself, the one who bought you, who redeemed you, and loves you. And so the shepherd, according to the first four verses, come underneath the great shepherd, and then everybody else in the congregation, the flock of God, that's, that's, it's going in that order. Christ, the shepherd, and the flock. That's the chain of command. And the Holy Spirit is calling us here to set aside our pride. He's going to mention pride in a moment. That's the thing that often gets in the way of our subjection and submission. And so He's calling us to set that pride aside and willingly and respectfully place ourselves under the leadership of our pastor. That doesn't mean He's perfect. He's not. No pastor is. But if we, if we don't obey this command, what's going to happen is you're, you're going to end up weakening the Lord's army and, and you, in the process you open up the, the door for Satan to come in and attack. So submit to spiritual authority. The second rule of war is to be humble. God wants you to be humble. Now, just be clear here, God... True humility does not involve some strange attitude of self-depreciation where you're constantly beating yourself and talking bad about yourself and t- calling yourself an idiot and you're stupid and, and, and then beating yourself and starving yourself and sleeping on cold floors and strange things like that that many have done throughout the centuries. That is not true humility. Because you can do all those things and attack your body which we call asceticism, and still not have the right view of yourself. Because that's what true humility is. It's really seeing yourself as God sees you. Having the right estimate of oneself. Now that's not very popular. Never has been. And you say, well, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to see myself as God sees me? (laughs) Well, there's two motivations in the text. Number one, the end of verse 5, here's the first motivation. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. That's enough motivation for me. I don't want God against me. I want Him on my side. I want to be with Him, not against Him. But the second motivation here is that God blesses the humble. So it's a double whammy. If you choose to be proud and not see yourself as God sees you, then... He's opposed to you, and you lose his blessing. In other words, it's like Deuteronomy talks about. Obedience brings God's blessing, and disobedience brings God's curse. Can't think of a worse place to be. So which one do you want? Do you want God's blessing or God's curse? You choose to be proud, you receive God's curse. If you humble yourself, have the right view of yourself as God sees you, then you will be blessed. So the Lord's army works best when every soldier knows who they are in Christ, sees themselves as as God sees them, and then you act according to that correct view of self. The problem is, too many people, (laughs) it's the same in, 
in, in, in earthly armies of this world. You know, if people think, you know, they deserve to be the general instead of the private, and the general's an idiot, and I'm, I know better than him, and, and I should be the general and running this army, and then, you know, if you get people having these wrong kinds of views in an army, the army's going to be a mess. It's the same in the Lord's army. We must humble ourselves, have look to Christ, know who we are in Christ, and then act accordingly. Third rule of war is to trust God. Verse 7 is basically telling us to trust God. It's a Greek participle, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That word cast there in verse 7 just means you think of somebody throwing a net over the water. You're, you're literally throwing upon someone or something else. The word suggests a deliberate decision. You are deciding to trust in the one whom you're throwing to. Who are you trusting in? Well, in this context, we're to trust God. With what are you to trust Him? Well, in this context, he says, God says, you can trust me with all your anxieties. In other words, it's the things that you tend to worry about, the things you tend to meditate upon and, and, and think about. Usually it's things with the wrong content. <laughs> That's what worry is. And so the word anxiety means you're drawn into different directions. It's like you're being pulled apart. Someone's pulling on both arms, both legs, and other parts of you, and you're just, you're going everywhere. You're divided. You're distracted. And that's what happens in your mind with your anxiety and your worried. Instead of thinking on the right contents, you fall into the sin of unbelief, and you're just drawn in all kinds of directions. You're paralyzed and you're not able to serve God like you should. You're a useless soldier, in other words. You know, what's the point here? That it, it, whatever we're anxious about tends to distract us from trusting in God. It tends to pull us in different directions so that we don't depend upon the commander-in-chief, upon God himself. And so, the Lord's again, the Lord's army works best when everybody is looking to the commander-in-chief, looking to Jesus, and then actually following him, doing what he tells us to do. All armies work that way. Fourth rule of war is, verse 8, we're told to be sober-minded. This is a command that's calling you to godly thinking. Very important. That we think right, think like God thinks. On a physical level, the, the word sober there refers to somebody who is self-controlled in relation to their uh, whether or not the alcohol or the drugs are intoxicating them. I, I think you've probably all seen somebody who's under the influence of a drug or an alcohol. They're no longer in self-control. They're not sober. They're influenced by something else. But here it refers to ordering and a, and a balancing of the, your life's issues, which requires the discipline of your mind 
to avoid being intoxicated by by the pleasures of this world. See, again, the Lord's army works best when everyone in his army is thinking properly, is thinking like the commander-in-chief. And we're following him, and we understand what he's what he's doing, why he's telling us to do this this way, then you'll have a well-oiled machine. Number five, the fifth rule of war. Look at your text, verse 8. You're to be watchful for the enemy. Some of your Bibles might say be vigilant or be alert, be watchful. Just the idea is you're, you're being on the lookout for danger. Being on the lookout for danger. You always need to be aware that someone is hunting you. Because your adversary doesn't sleep. He doesn't take holidays. He doesn't go to the batch. He doesn't go to the beach. He doesn't go and enjoy a movie. He's on the prowl. And he never takes a rest. If you were in war... Someone, if you're in a foxhole and you know the enemy's out there, he's just, he's out there somewhere, you're likely to stay awake at night. If you know that he could come anytime running into my foxhole with his knife, it tends to keep you awake. Many soldiers have experienced that very thing. And as soldiers of Jesus Christ, we need to be awake, we need to be vigilant and alert. There's a lion who who's out there lurking in the grass, stalking your every step. He's waiting for that moment to catch you off guard. And if you just step out of the security of God's people, the church, you're a sitting duck. You're, you're a target. If you dare to put down the weapons that Ephesians 6 talks about, again, you're a target. And dare I say, some have even taken a nap in the sun. That's not what this text says. This text says, be watchful. <laughs> I find this interesting because these are very similar words to what Jesus told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. Stay awake. Be watchful. The enemy wants to come and get you, Peter. Watch and pray, is what Jesus told Peter. Jesus goes off to pray, comes back, and what's Peter doing? Sleeping. Peter probably remembered that lesson. Watch. Be watchful. Be vigilant. Be alert. This is important because you need to understand the adversary knows your strengths and your weaknesses. He's been around a lot longer than we have. In fact, he's had thousands and thousands of years to watch us. He's observed mankind and he's become an expert on human nature after 6,000 years. <laughs> Don't you think he would be very good at this now by now? And so we, we need to remember and, and not forget that we are actually his prey. And that he is a great lion who is hungry to devour. That's what the text says. So be watchful. John Bunyan one of my favorite authors understood how our enemy works. You probably know his greatest work, 
The second greatest book ever written is Pilgrim's Progress. But a lesser-known book, which I'd highly recommend you read, is The Holy War, written by John Bunyan. And I love how he describes how Satan, and, and in his book, he uses the Greek word diabolus to describe Satan. Satan ends up taking and defeating the town of Mansoul. By the way, the good news is eventually Prince Emmanuel comes in and defeats Diabolus and takes back over the town of Mansoul. But anyway, that's, that's a spoiler alert. But one of the first things that's interesting, how did he defeat the town of Mansoul? Any of you ever read the Holy War? None of you? One of the first things he did is he took out the watchmen. Took out the watchman. The watchman's supposed to be awake, alert, vigilant for the danger. Why would you take out the watchman? Because if you leave him sitting up there and you try to come and attack the gate, he's able to raise the alarm and then all the whole town of Mansoul is going to kind of wake up and able to defend itself. So Diabolus takes out watchman. And I also find it interesting that after he does that, one of the first things he did is he attacked Eargate. Now, why would John Bunyan pick Eargate first? Because John Bunyan knows his Bible. That's why. What did Diabolus, known as the devil and Satan, do to Adam and Eve? Tax Eargate. What's the thing? He, what's he think he does? He, he comes and he says, did God really say? trying to get them to doubt God's word, and eventually they succumb to his trickery. So Diabolus attacks ear gate. So one lesson we can learn from that is watch your ear gate. Watch your ear gate. Because Diabolus and the devil is still using the ears. He's using your senses to attack you. He's still trying to get you to doubt his word. And then Diabolus attacked eye gate. Eye gate. Your eyes. What do you see? You're surrounded by one of your enemies, the world. The system you live in is an enemy. Satan is your enemy. Your own flesh is your enemy. You're, you're surrounded by enemies. They're everywhere. First John 2 warns us about these kinds of temptations we have to deal with. By the way, you'll notice ear gate and eye gate. John mentions them, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Watch out for them. They're coming out. They're coming for you. So be vigilant, be alert, and be watchful. Next, Peter tells us about our adversary. I hate to say this, but the first thing I need to mention that Peter mentions is it's an obvious one. But there are people who don't believe we have an adversary. Can you believe that? So here's my first point, my friends. You have an adversary. <laughs> Peter just says you have one in verse 8. After he says, be sober, minded, be watchful, he just says, your adversary. He's not even trying to prove that there is an adversary, but... Sadly to say, there are even some people today who refuse to believe in Satan, in the devil. And then, and then it's, it's, it's sad, there's so many imbalances on our adversary. Let me just address some of them, some of these imbalances. For example, C.S. Lewis, 
suggested that the two mistakes Christians make in talking about Satan, now this is Christians, is we either joke about him or we ignore him. I hope you don't do either of those. Satan is not a joke. He is not the guy with the red the red costume with a pointed tail and a pitchfork and horns. He's not in charge of hell. He is not a joke. And he certainly should not be ignored. And you need to be aware of these two extremes because sometimes some Christians attribute too much power to Satan. And they think that he's under every rock, behind every tree, and he's he's responsible for every sin and every sort of darkness in this world. He's not. That's one extreme. The other is some people attribute too little power to, to Satan. And if you do that, those extremes will lead to either you're an overreaction to Satan or you're, you're, you're not prepared to be attacked. Either one is bad. You're going to lose. Well, this verse says, hey, wake up. Soldier, wake up. Pay attention. You're involved in a spiritual battle, a life and death battle. You need to know the enemy. You need to know his characteristics. Study him. Scripture gives us some things that we need to know about him. But before we study him a little bit further, just let me give you another imbalance that some people have. Some believe that he, like I said, some believe he doesn't even exist. Anyway, I'm not going to spend any time on that. Those who believe Satan doesn't exist are living in a dream world. They're in some fantasy world. You can see his handiwork all around us. But as for his, some people think, well, he's, it's like he's almost omnipresent. He's all present, ascribing godlike characteristics to him. Of course, he's not. That's the other imbalance. And so, and then, and then when you do that sort of thing, contrary to what some teach, Scripture, by the way, nowhere commands believers to go and attack the devil and his demons with your prayers, your formulas. Uh, nowhere does the Scripture say to go and bind Satan. Because the Bible says Christ does that. That's Christ's responsibility, not ours. It's not your responsibility to go and bind Satan. So, point one is you have an adversary. He's alive and well on planet Earth. Number two, our adversary is described here as the devil. Satan goes by several names and titles in the Bible. The term diabolus or devil is, uh, is used here. The title refers to his slander of God's people. He's often known to go before God and accuse the brothers and sisters. The Bible says that. It's exactly what he tried to do before God in, in the book of Job. There's other ones we can learn from him, though. The, the Greek word satanus, Satan, comes from a Hebrew word for adversary. In Revelation 9.11, he's called other things such as Abaddon and Apollyon. just means he is a destroyer. Names that refer to his destructiveness. He is not a good person. <laughs> and if you just kind of take all those labels together and 
and put them into one pot, you get the, a very interesting description of the devil. He is one who is dangerous and destructive, one who is a deceiver who slanders and accuses us at every opportunity. That's who he is, and that's what he does. He is the father of lies. He's not your friend. He's your enemy, your adversary. We also see here in the text that he, our adversary prowls like a lion. Notice the text says he's like a lion. He is not a lion. <laughs> and in fact, he is an imposter. He's always wanted to be like the Most High. Read Isaiah chapter 14. He had an eye problem, or a pride problem. He wants to be like the Most High, and so he's an imposter. He wants to be like the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I think C.S. Lewis understood the enemy, the adversary, because I I love how C.S. Lewis describes this in the Chronicles of Narnia. One of my favorite uh, books I've read is... uh, the last battle, last book in the Chronicles of Narnia there, he, he wrote about a false lion, a false Aslan. Aslan is the Christ-like figure, the lion of the tribe of Judah there. And you'll see somebody's drawing of this. In this particular story, there's two characters. There's puzzle and shift, an ape and a donkey. Puzzle's a talking donkey. His name suits him quite well, he's, but he's rather dense. He's not a very intelligent donkey but he did have a good heart and he ends up doing what's right in the end but he was he becomes this uh, a friend of shift the ape he's a sly ape who abuses puzzles trust for his own gain sadly the donkey was often tricked into doing whatever the ape told him to do one day shift uh, discovered that there was a skin of a lion in a pool of water so he had Puzzle retrieve it at great peril, and he puts it on Puzzle, on, on Puzzle the donkey. He makes him wear it, even though he doesn't want to wear it. The loyal donkey originally didn't want to wear the lion skin, but nevertheless he's tricked into imitating Aslan, the, the great lion. And Shift used Puzzle, the donkey, to control his fellow Narnians, because they, they thought he was Aslan, the, the king of Narnia. Puzzles eventually rescued by a girl named Jill, and, and he ends up seeing the errors of his ways. And later, he's uh, he he joins a group of good Narnians in the last battle of Narnia, and then eventually the the real Aslan arrives in Narnia and has a little conversation with with the donkey. And uh, after that private discussion, he's officially pardoned, and he's led into Aslan's country. The donkey and the ape, they tried to pull off what was impossible. You can even see in this picture here, the skin over the donkey. The donkey's nose is sticking out. His his hooves are sticking out. He clearly, underneath the skin, still looks like a donkey. He's a cheap imitation of the great lion. <laughs> and that's the way it is with Satan. May I just remind you, he is like a lion. He is not the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is not Christ. The great lion Jesus demands our allegiance, not the devil. So don't be overcome by him. He is not more powerful than Jesus. Number four, 
our adversary is seeking to devour, as the text says. Again, he is not your friend. He is not out for your good. So what are we to do when you you actually are standing before your adversary? Well, there's all kinds of options before you, right? You could panic. Ah! Some people do that. Some people run away. That's what some people do in battle, right? The bombs are going off. Your enemy's there coming after you with swords and bombs and guns and so forth. You can run. You can surrender to your enemy. Well, those are all possible options you could do. But is that what God wants us to do? Well, you have an adversary who is seeking to devour you. He doesn't want what's best for you. And we'll see what it, what to do about this in a moment. But may I remind you, this is these are some of the things that Satan wants to do to you. He would love to see you panic and run and surrender to him. And to no longer trust in God. And this is what Satan planned for Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. If you've never heard of him, he was one of the leaders in the English Reformation. And uh, there's someone's drawing of him. And uh, he he did a lot of good things, okay? I won't even get into all those. But sadly, uh, uh, well, one of the good things is he he wouldn't support the Roman, uh, Roman Catholicism. He was not in support of Roman Catholicism. He was, he was a great supporter of uh, some of the theology of Luther and Zwingli and some of the other reformers and was trying to make some good changes in England. But when Queen Mary came on the throne and, and he refused to, to, to bow to her wishes to make England Catholic, Queen Mary had him imprisoned in the Tower of London. And she kept him there for a while and then he, he was eventually moved to another prison and isolated for about 24 months. She didn't want to kill him at first. She was hoping that he would recant and kind of come to her side. She felt like he could be a really powerful ally to the Catholicism's cause. Well, he never gave in during those 24 months, but after his trial started, he, 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 sadly, he was put under great, great pressure. He was interrogated for heresy, and he recanted and withdrew some of his beliefs. Exactly what Satan wanted him to do. He surrendered to the enemy. And so under extreme pressure, he accepted Catholic, some of Catholic theology. In fact, I understand uh, he stated that there was no salvation outside the Catholic Church. Cramer was told that he would be able to make a final recantation, but... This time he had to do it in public. He, he needed to be humiliated. And he was to do it a, in, in a particular service at the university church. And so at the pulpit on the day of his execution, Queen Mary refused to let him live. I'm glad to say he recanted of his recantations. <laughs> He renounced the recantations that he had written or signed with his hand, his own hand. He stated his hand, in fact, this is what he told from the pulpit. This hand will be the first to burn in the fire. And here's what he said, quote, from the pulpit. As for the Pope, I refuse him. As Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all his false doctrine. (laughs) 
that's not going to win friends and influence, you know, people, the Catholics, not usually. And so they pulled him out of the pulpit quite violently. He was taken to the stake to be burned alive. I'm glad to say he fulfilled his promise. By holding his hand in the fire without shrinking until his his hand was burnt to a crisp, a cinder. Even before the fire affected his body, you can read this in Fox's Book of Martyrs if you wish, he was repeatedly saying, this unworthy right hand, he was so ashamed of denying Christ. He was so ashamed, and so he kept saying, this unworthy right hand. So his body did abide the burning with such steadfastness. Eyewitnesses have said that he seemed to have no more than the stake to which to be bound to. He was was free on the inside even though his body was bound. And so he died quoting the very words of Stephen from the book of Acts. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I have no reason to doubt that Lord Jesus did receive his spirit that day. So, my friends, the point of this is this is what one of Satan's tactics. You need to be aware. He is like a prowling lion. Not a lion, but the adversary is, is deadly. He wants you to panic. He wants you to retreat and surrender. He doesn't want you to trust God. So let me just quickly, I wish I had time to dwell more upon this, but I've just thrown a lot of scriptures up on the screen here for you. So you can understand our adversary is seeking to destroy you. And so you need to be aware of his tactics. Know your enemy. All right, here's some of Satan's activities based on various scriptures in the Bible. He's trying to provoke you to sin. He can't make you sin, but he's going to try to tempt you with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And as he did to Job, he's, he's trying to find victims. He didn't want Job to glorify God. So he did everything he could with God's permission to Job. And three, he does cause some physical illness as he did to Job. But he is not responsible for everything. All right. So if you're laying in bed with the flu, don't blame Satan for it. It's probably not him doing that. Okay, <laughs> all right. He is not omnipresent and all-powerful, doing all these bad things in the world. But sadly, according to Second Corinthians four, he is spiritually blinding unbelievers. Praise God that he does set some free from that. According to Ephesians six, he shoots flaming arrows at people, and that's why you need to have armor on to defend against the fiery arrows of the wicked one. And according to 1 Thessalonians 2, he he tries to hinder you. He's trying to hinder you. He's trying to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. He tries to make you do things that God doesn't want you to do. (laughs) And, And how does he do that? Well, we've seen this over and over again. Matthew 13, he's undermining God's word. Gives you some truth with the error. Mix it together. A lot of people can't tell the difference. But may I remind you, as we see here at the next screen, that Satan's activities are limited. He is not all-powerful and all-present and all-knowing. In fact, Genesis 3.15 tells us the head of Satan has been crushed. 
It was a promise in Genesis 3.15. This serpent would bite the heel of the one who would crush him. That's exactly what Jesus did on the cross to Satan. And so in Job 1, we see that he, he must receive permission from God. He's kind of like a dog on a leash, right? You ever tease the dog on a leash? It's a lot of fun. You should try it sometime, right? As long as you know how long that leash is or how long the chain is. No, I'm not suggesting that, please. It's a joke. You can laugh, all right? Uh, as a really naughty boy, I used to do that sort of thing. But, you know, you know how long is that chain? How long is that leash? And then you just stand, you just stand a little bit past the dog and you tease him and make faces and you know, do things because you know he can't hurt you. It's like Satan. He can run at you. He can bark. He can snarl. He raises his hair on his back. You can't hurt me. Man, that's, that's like Satan. He has to receive permission from God to do anything to Job. And he can, therefore, James 4 tells us he can be resisted. He can be resisted by us. So therefore, he can be overcome. First John 2 tells us. How is he overcome, though? Revelation 12. He's overcome by the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has overcome Satan. So what's Satan's destiny? May I remind you what the Bible tells? Yes, Satan is alive and well on planet Earth at the moment, but he has, he has the destiny. Judgment day is coming for him, too. So John 16 tells us he's going to be judged by God one day. Revelation 20 tells us he's going to be bound in the bottomless pit for 1,000 years during the millennium. He'll be, he'll be uh, tucked away, out of sight, out of mind, hopefully. Revelation also tells us he's going to be cast there into that bottomless pit. And then eventually, at the end of the millennium, he'll lead a revolt. But Jesus will deal with him and forever put him in the lake of fire. That is his ultimate destiny. So he will be doomed, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, doomed to everlasting fire. He is not in charge of hell. He is going to be one of the participants. He's going to be one of the prisoners. In fact, the Bible said that, that hell was made for Satan and the demons. That's where they're going to end up. So that's his activities. His activities are limited, and he has an eternal destiny and he's going to pay for his pride. So may I suggest you be aware of some of his tactics. So how do you defeat an adversary like this? A very powerful adversary. Been around a long time. Well, that's verse 9. Peter says, resist him firm in your faith. Notice he says resist him, but it's not resisting him in your own strength. The only way you can resist Satan is firm in your faith. The word resist there means you're, you stand against the devil. You oppose him. You don't run. You don't retreat. You don't surrender. You resist and stand. This command is met here with a qualification. Again, may I remind you, you don't resist him in your own strength. He is more powerful than you are. You will lose. It's not your confidence in, in your power or your ability that's going to win the battle. And so anytime we do that, we're overmatched. Uh, we're to be firm in our faith. And so Peter certainly isn't speaking of just 
faith itself or faith in other human beings or faith in some magical incantation or gimmick or or some method what how do you resist him you stand against the devil with an unshakable faith in an all-powerful god that's your only hope you're relying on on his defense to stand against the devil not yours and it's difficult to stand by the way when you can't see the end it's really hard to endure through a long war when you don't know when it's going to end. You can't see an end in sight. And so the Holy Spirit encourages us here with the end. Look what he says in verse 10. Because this is the, the end of a Christian's war. He says, and after you have suffered. <laughs> in other words, it's going to come to an end, my friends. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. And though victory is certain, Peter reminds us here that suffering and pain are going to accompany the warfare. Expect it. No one who's endured enemy attacks emerges uh, from the enemy's attacks without some measure of pain. The battle's going to shake you. You're going to be shocked. You're going to have some ugly scars. All right? That's what happens to soldiers who go through warfare. If you don't end up with scars on your skin, you end up with scars of the mind. Talk to soldiers. If you can get them to talk about their war experiences, most of them don't want to talk about it. It's such an unpleasant experience, they don't even want to talk about it. But if you do, you'll notice they have scars, even in their own minds. They have a hard time coming back to reality and getting back into civilian life. The war has scarred them, some beyond measure. But what happens when all the dust settles and, and you go back to your civilian life, the war is done, and you go to heaven? Then what? When the war ends, the great physician's going to go to work on us. That's what's going to happen. The great physician will go to work on you. And by the great physician, I mean Jesus Christ. And here, Peter lists some benefits that actually come with God's heavenly version here of the purple heart. So think of yourself as a soldier. You've, you've earned the purple heart. You've, you have some battle scars. You have some wounds. You get the purple heart. Then what? Well, in verse 10, we see that God's going to reward you. Notice he says there is an eternal glory that is to come. In fact, he's called you for this. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, what's he going to do? Notice Jesus himself will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. So yes, you're going to come through warfare, you're going to be scarred, you're going to be wounded, it's, it's going to be hard, but you have one who can heal you. I, I love that very word there, restore. God will restore us. The idea is there, he repairs the damage, he mends you to the point that you are made whole. In fact, that, that very word there, restore, is used of what fishermen would do to their nets. 
They might spend their afternoon after the fish have, have started destroying their nets. They might spend the afternoon fixing their nets so that the fish don't get away. They mend their nets. They restore their nets. And that's what God's going to do to His people. He's also going to confirm us. The idea is that not only does He repair the damage, not only does He take a, a, a soldier who's been beaten up and make him whole, but He stands us up. He makes us firm. He, he gives us a secure standing. That's the idea of confirming us. And then He strengthens us. He, he makes us able to then stand there and keep standing there. So He gives us the strength to do that so that we're stable and strong to keep standing. And then the Bible says in verse 10 that He establishes us. The idea is there what Peter's been talking about. He, he turns us into the spiritual house of God so that we are His family, His children. That's how established we are. I don't know, we, we could talk a long time about that, but you say, well, man, that's, that's, that's awesome, and it is. But verse 11 is awesome too because we see that God's going to ultimately control us. And you'd say, well, wow, He rewards us, He restores us, confirms us, strengthens us, establishes us. How do I know that's going to last? That sounds too good to just keep going on and on and on and on and on. Well, that's where you know that He controls you. And it's not just a one-off. It is forever and ever and ever. Because verse 11 says, to Him be the dominion forever and ever. It keeps going. <laughs> so in all of our sufferings, we see Christ's reign is going to carry on forever. Satan can't extinguish God's dominion. He can't extinguish God's rule in your life for this universe. Again, I love what the English reformers believe. They, they understood that their sufferings were we're not the end. In fact, they're actually accomplishing God's purposes. If you've never heard of these reformers, you can go read about them in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, they were bishops in England. They were burned at the stake in Oxford for their faith in Christ in the year 1555. And as the flames were burning around them, I love what Latimer says. You can read about it in the book. He he cries out as the flames were surrounding both of them. They're both tied, tied together at the stake. And Hugh Latimer says, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. They didn't fear the one who could kill the body. They feared the one who could kill the soul. And they understood that God was in control and doing a great work. And often it's true, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So those were the final words of a suffering man who wanted nothing more than just to die and adore King Jesus. Well, maybe he said the same for us. Well, Peter paints the picture of a well-grounded, seasonal warrior who's who's come through the battle, he's come through the battle with some maturity, with some stability that, that couldn't have been developed any other way through just hardship and suffering. 
But even as we go through the necessary fiery ordeal that Peter talked about in chapter 4, God allows those fiery ordeals, the fiery trials of life, to refine us and strengthen us, to grow us. And we can continue to have hope because of four truths that Peter mentions here. Let me just quickly mention these. Here's four truths that will that will help us. Don't forget these. Number one, the suffering is only for a little while. It's only for a little while. Did you see what Peter said in verse 10? Just two little words. After you have suffered a little while. It may not feel that way to you, <laughs> but that's a good thing to remember. It is only for a little while. And then Peter goes on to say that the suffering is accompanied by God's grace and calling. It is accompanied by God's grace and calling. Did you see there in verse 10? Again, it is the God of all grace who is there with you. So it's only for a little while. It's accompanied by God's grace and calling. And notice Peter says in verse 10 that it has a purpose, a holy purpose that is actually counter to Satan's pursuits. It is actually the reverse of Satan's pursuits. Satan's trying to devour you. He's trying to destroy Christ's church. He's trying to get you to doubt God. He's trying to keep people from coming to Christ. But Peter says in verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's going to happen. And so we see in verse 11 that God is in control. These are all comforting truths, strengthening truths. You need to know these things and don't forget them because when the fiery trial comes, it's all you're going to have to hold on to. But Peter ends with a testimony of God's grace. He's been talking about God's grace throughout this book. And I love this, this little story here that in this final greeting. Apparently Peter's writing this himself. Silas hands the pen over to Peter. Silas has been writing Peter's words down, and so now Peter speaks. And he mentions somebody named Mark. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about the guy, but he's very significant, very important. Who is Mark in verse 13? Peter calls him his son. That doesn't mean he needs to literally be Peter's son. That's probably not the case. Most likely he is the John Mark that Acts chapter 15 talks about. If you remember him in the book of Acts, Mark was a figure of contention between Barnabas and Paul. Remember, John Mark was taken on the first missionary journey. Unfortunately, he didn't persevere. He quit. And that didn't make Paul happy. I don't blame him. But anyway, God used this contention between Barnabas and Paul to create two missionary teams instead of one and so barnabas wants to take john mark with him on the second missionary journey paul didn't like that idea you can read about it in acts 15 you say well well why well would you take somebody who deserted you on the first trip maybe you would i don't know maybe you have more more mercy and grace than uh, than, than paul does but paul decides not to he can't trust the guy he deserted me once how can i trust him again so Paul ends up taking 
Silas on the second missionary journey, and they travel together. And Barnabas takes Mark. And it's interesting, if that's not the end of the story, because if you read Paul's last book he ever wrote, according to the Holy Spirit, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul actually said that Mark was useful to him. Mark had a change of heart. Mark persevered in the gospel and didn't deny Christ. And I also find it interesting here, I don't know if you caught on to this, remember it says, verse 12, it mentions Silvanus or Silas. Silas is there with Mark. Remember, Silas was the one who went with Paul. Paul was the one who didn't want Mark to go with him. And here they are together. I find that so cool. It's interesting to see these guys together. Working closely with Peter, as far as I know, it's about 15 years later. And so this illustrates a glorious truth, the essential unity of the apostles' ministries despite the strong disagreement that they had. They were able to to come together in unity. And so Christian history tells us that God used a man who was a failure, who came back to Christ, who was faithful to the end, as far as we know. And God used him to write the second gospel in your Bible, the one that bears his name called the Gospel According to Mark. And though it bears his name, he, it's really a gospel that it, we could call Peter. Because Mark is not a first-hand account. Mark was there with Peter. As far as I know, this is Rome, codenamed Babylon. <laughs> so there's Peter in Rome. He's going to be executed, crucified upside down, history tells us. He's there with Silas. He's there with Mark. Peter's telling Mark what to write. So Mark is really Peter's first-hand account of Jesus Christ. That is a testimony of God's grace. We see someone who is a failure, just like Peter, who denied Christ. Jesus says, don't sleep, pray. Peter doesn't do that, he sleeps. And then he goes and denies Christ. Jesus warned him that Satan wants to sift you like wheat, Peter. He wants to sift you like wheat. Beware of his attacks. Beware of his temptations. Peter denied Christ. So Peter understood this. He understood, I need to show grace to failures like me. Peter shows grace to failure like John Mark. John Mark grows in God's grace and is able to stand firm as Peter learned to stand firm in the grace of of God. And so my friends, this is a powerful testimony of God's grace. God wants you to stand firm in this hostile world. Will you do that? Will you do that? You say, how can that be? The answer is the only way you're going to stand firm in a hostile world is by God's grace. God's enabling. His power in your life can enable you to stand firm in a hostile world. Without God's grace, we're going to fail. We're going to deny Christ, just like Peter did. We'll walk away from the gospel. We'll walk away from the missionary journey, just as John Mark did. Without God's grace, that's what we'll all do. But with God's enabling grace, we can do what God wants us to do, as Peter, Silas, and Mark did. So may God enable us to understand His grace. 
and to live it out for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your grace, Your enabling grace, Your all-powerful grace to do what we cannot do for ourselves. First of all, we praise You for saving us, those of us who are believers in Christ alone. Thank You for bringing dead people to life, from death to life, from sin to Yourself. Thank You for doing that great work which we could never do ourselves. Thank You for enabling us to to persevere, to stand firm in a hostile world. Whatever fiery ordeals and trials You bring our way, may we stand firm. May we never deny Christ. May we never deny Your Word. May we guard those ear gates and eye gates and all the other gates that Diabolus would not get in. Protect us from ourselves, this world from the devil. May we know our enemy. May we know our enemies well. May we resist him firm in our faith. Thank you for giving us that strength to do so. Thank you for not leaving us on our own, just throwing us out there on the front line to just be wiped out and destroyed. We know because you are the all-powerful one. You can do what we can't. And we know that the enemy has already been defeated. He is a defeated foe. His head has been crushed by Christ. So may we live in that power and in that strength and in that reality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.